without much further ado, we are pleased to have Mr. John R. Goodlad as our end-of-year speaker in this special lecture. John has said he will take his lead from the Ian Drury and the Blockheads song, Reasons to be Cheerful, and expand on what is going right in the world as we enter 2022. John, can I please welcome you to the stage, the rightful stage for you in this year, 2021. The world in 2022, reasons to be cheerful, reflections of a diplomat. John Goodlad, our past president, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Brendan. Um, actually, I probably should just finish there, really. <laughs> that was pretty good. Um, look, I don't know if you've noticed, but we are being broadcast tonight on Sky News Extra, so I hope, you, I hope Sky News Extra caught all of that. <laughs> That's terrific. Um, but you're right, we did have Ian Drury and the Blockheads at the beginning, and we did talk about reasons to be cheerful, so we walked into that. Um, welcome to our Christmas event. Um, we're probably the last institute in Australia to have a Christmas event. Um, there was some talk a few years ago, should we have a sort of end of year season's greetings, you know, don't mention the Christmas word or anything like that. And I'm pleased to say that our Vice President, Professor Samina Yasmin, who heads the Centre for Muslim States and Society, scoffed and said, well, of course it's the Christmas event. So here in WA we have a Christmas event and we're proud to have it. So welcome everyone here tonight. Look, the genesis of tonight's presentation is really, in, as, as Brendan mentioned, in my nine years as president, I'd often get to wrap up uh, presentations, often of a very challenging nature, often very challenging topics. And uh, at, at the, well, I'll give you an example. You know, we had a distraught Kim Beasley, our patron, governor of Western Australia, former defence minister, former former deputy prime minister but a distraught Kim Beasley talking about the Trump ascendancy, and he's quite emotional about it. It's very hard to sort of finish that up and say, well, thank you very much, Governor, and, and do all that sort of thing. We'll try and insert something that is a little bit positive at the end of some of these things. Another one is I'm really pleased to welcome here tonight Professor Mark Beeson. And Mark, Mark, my very last formal event, I suppose, was to, was to preside over Mark's um, most recent book review, which is called... The book's called Environmental Anarchy, Security in the 21st Century. And the cover shows a burnt tree with a sort of apocalyptic half-light background. And um, it sort of goes downhill from there. So I think Mark would be the first person to say it was a pretty bleak forecast. And I wouldn't say it's an hour and a half of my life I'd never get back, but it was a pretty, pretty tough, pretty tough and challenging uh, situation. So what I'd try and do is quietly insert something positive into the uh, into the scene. So with Kim, it was just mentioning quite gently that, you know, um, President Trump had appointed General Mattis as his defence secretary, and <laughs> Kim knows General Mattis pretty well and, and sort of disarmed slightly about that, but wondered how long it would last. Well, we, it lasted two years, but it wasn't long enough. Um, with With Mark, I think... I didn't have a lot to say. I was very grateful for the speech. I think we went off and had a pizza at Canteen and a couple of glasses of red um, to sort of talk about that. But in previous years, we did, um, um, you know, peace had broken out in Colombia. As, as you're aware, I'm the Honorary Consul for Colombia and, and there were Nobel laureates in Colombia. 
And that was noteworthy and, and very an emotional thing for a country that had gone through so much that peace had broken out. Um, in 2018, we chose the Thai Caves Rescue as the positive thing for 2018, an international effort starring some Australians, but just a fabulous, a fabulous example of international cooperation with a, with a great outcome. So we used that. So that became, this developed, and I, I got a phone call from my illustrious predecessor, Dr. Sue Boyd, uh, a few weeks ago, asking quite politely, quite nicely, if I'd like to give the Christmas address. And um, I think the real reason was uh, Professor Hugh White couldn't make it. <laughs> and um, so she very, very kindly asked, would I, would I like to do it? And perhaps, you know, develop this theory of, you know, reasons to be cheerful and, and all the rest of it. So she said that, and but also wove in that it's a bit of a valedictory, as uh, as Brendan's mentioned. It's um, passed the baton to, to Brendan. I now officially have my... Um, Cards that say immediate past present, just handed those tonight. Um, but as Brendan mentioned, you know, I've had over 50 years mixed up with international relations in my own way. Probably 60 years, actually. That's <laughs> how started. Well, I am 64, 1957, so, yeah. Um, but it started at Camberwell Grammar, my school in, uh, in Victoria, in Melbourne, and where we did have Chinese Mandarin as a language, along with Latin and French and German. And a number of us took up Chinese, and that changed my life. And I really, part of reasons to be cheerful and part of what we all do is the importance of learning Asian languages here in Australia. It just can't be stressed enough. So for me, it changed my life. It actually got me into Foreign Affairs, <laughs> Department of Foreign Affairs, and I never mentioned it ever again because I took one look at North Asia Division, and there were pretty grim postings in those days. <laughs> and um, next thing, I was learning Thai and spending time in Southeast Asia. So... Um, Time with time in Thailand. Of course, during that time, I met. I should acknowledge my my um, wife is here tonight, who's a diplomat as well. She's also uh, president of the Australian Institute of uh, sorry, the Australia Indonesia Business Council nationally. But so we spent some time together in Thailand and Indonesia. We're one of the first diplomatic couples actually uh, to be able to to travel the world as a couple. Um, so we did the DFAT thing, but I kept. I'll, I'll tell you why, later why I resigned because it involves a little anecdote I'm going to tell about East Timor or why I changed career. But um, I'm still a diplomat. My plates on the car are diplomatic plates They're for uh, Colombia. Um, we've been mixed up with the Australian Institute of International Affairs for several years and that involved at the national level as well and also trip, rep, trips representing the Institute, which was uh, pretty pretty special. So I got to go to NATO headquarters just after Russia had moved in on Crimea. And um, boy, were they, <laughs> were they shocked. Um, and that's, that's something that you know, we can reflect upon. But that, that goes with groupthink, and I'll allude to this later, that, that, that NATO was so horrified that the Russians could say one thing and do another, whereas those of us from this part of the world <laughs> were saying, well, you know, what did you expect the Black Sea fleet just to, you know, stay with the Ukrainians and all, all that sort of thing. What on? So after three days spent in NATO, it was this part of the world that was saying, you guys aren't realistic enough, you're not being realist. So I'll weave a few of those reflections into what we're about to talk about, but reasons to be cheerful. Um, first of all, there's a, a slightly serious underpinning to this. It's not. I'm not talking about sort of look at the bright side, you know, Brian, this is nailed to the cross and all that sort of thing. I'm not talking about 
an episode of Love Actually, which is the movie that we all play at this time of year, and just saying, look, we should be more cheerful. Um, I'm saying it's um, important that we do take a balanced and objective approach to global issues and that we take a constructive approach. And I'll tell you why, because international relations has often been characterised as a discipline that is rooted in pessimism. Uh, Melissa Connolly-Tyler, who's my, uh, who is the CEO of the Australian Institute of International Affairs nationally, has written an article which is in the latest Australian Journal, well, in an Australian Journal of International Affairs, our institute publication recently, Why International Relations Should Be More Optimistic. And it starts with the impression that international relations is consumed by a wide variety of crises, many apparently intractable. And that's understandable. That's, that's what we do. And, and Mark's book's a good example of that. But, you know, it looks pretty horrific. If you, if you read Melissa's article, she actually quotes from quite a useful publication. There's a, a body called the Commission for the, Commission for the Future. And that identifies 10 risks of the end of human civilization and human extinction. And it's worth reading out what the 10 risks are. These are reasons to be fearful. Reasons to be tearful, if you like. But here, here we go. So I'm sure, I'm sure these are well covered by Mark in his book and well covered by everyone here. But I'll read you the 10 because I think it's interesting. Because it's pretty depressing. Ecological collapse and extinction. Global warming. Weapons of mass destruction. Resource scarcity. Global poisoning. Food insecurity. Pandemic disease. We know all about that. Population, overpopulation, uncontrolled technology, and the final one, this odd one, self-delusion. But that's the Commission for the Future's understandable categorisation of reasons to be fearful, if you like, and they're understandably <coughs> pessimistic. But Melissa argues in her article that this negativity bias can lead to poor decision-making. It can lead to fatalism, cynicism, acquiescence, or worse, a do-nothing attitude. And it motivates, if you like, it motivates helplessness. Uh, she gives the examples of climate activists who, you know, this is just so bad, there's nothing we can do. As Hanrahan said in the poem, we'll all be ruined. We'll all be ruined. It gives, she gave the example of Cold War generals who accepted the, the grim necessity for nuclear strikes and just accepted it. So her, her view is that this relentless negativity can lead to poor decision-making or a lack of decision-making, even worse, where it's, as I said, fatalism, cynicism, acquiescence, a do-nothing attitude. She argues we need to inject some optimism to counter that so we can better understand and shape international behaviour. So... Let's ask one of the questions that she asked, and I'll be interested in people's views on this. Uh, one of the questions that, she, that, that is posed in this article that comes from a fellow called Hans Rosling. And I'll pose you all this question. In the last 20 years, the proportion of people living in extreme poverty has, one, almost doubled, two, remained more or less the same, three, almost halved. So... Who thinks it's one that's almost doubled? One, two, three. Who thinks it's remained more or less the same? 
half a dozen. Who thinks it's almost halved? Overwhelming majority. It really, you're, we're an overwhelming majority. Perhaps it goes with the nature of the <laughs> discussion tonight. Reasons to be cheerful. But normally, only 7% of an audience get the answer to that question right. The majority of people think the world is more frightening and more hopeless than it really is. This has been taken further by a few foreign policy commentators, Michael Cohen and Mika Zenko, in various articles, and you can read them in Foreign Policy magazine, Foreign Affairs magazine, Foreign Affairs, um, well, the Foreign Affairs of uh, the Blue Booklet. But the, the title of their most recent book gives you an idea of what they have to say. The book is called Clear and Present Safety. The world has never been better and why that matters to Americans. Clear and present safety. They talk of threat inflation. Indeed, they talk about the threat industrial complex. So you remember from Eisenhower's days, the defence industrial complex. This is the threat industrial complex. So it's policymakers, politicians, academics peddling fear and pessimism and people like us passing it on, perhaps accepting that. They argue very strongly this can lead to very poor policy outcomes and countries, for instance, spending less on issues that really do kill or harm them. And this, Mark, you'll be pleased to hear, I always remember you talking about $50 billion in submarines, perhaps better used elsewhere. Um, this is what they have to say. They give the examples of this overemphasis of, um, of resourcing, if you like. They talk about... Two debates. One is the inevitable war with China. The inevitability of a war with China that is accepted and accepted and accepted, therefore we have to do things. Or international terrorism. That this is so bad that we have to devote enormous resources to this and spend less, therefore, on domestic issues. When some of these domestic issues, or a huge number of these domestic issues, kill or harm more Americans. And the, the domestic issues they mentioned are Obesity, drinking, smoking, suicides, domestic violence, gang violence, the opioid crisis, gun homicides, etc. So if we look at, if we look at this threat inflation, as they call it, it can lead to a misallocation of resources, according to these, uh, these analysts. Uh, this has got, this has been taken further by anyone who's interested in an optimistic view of, uh, of the world should read Steve Stephen Pinker. He has a book called Enlightenment Now. He's a bit of a... I know people are familiar with uh, with um, Bernard Francis Levy, BHL in, in France, very groovy, good-looking French male so-called philosopher. But this is Stephen Pinker. He's a bit of a cool dude. And he's got a psychological psychology background. Why the world is doing better than you think, according to Stephen Pinker. So it's a good book to read, but one of the one of the facts he talks about is the odds that an American will die in a terrorist incident is one in 3.3 million. But terrorism and national security are the largest concern of most Americans. And here's the killer. Here's the killer. Bees kill more Americans every year than do ISIS, sharks, scorpions, alligators, bears, and airplanes combined. <laughs> so. This, this goes with this pessimistic view, this negative, negativity bias that we talk about, and the fact that it can lead to two outcomes. One is this 
give up its all too terrible or distorted decisions, or a misallocation of public public resources as well. So this, these are some of the arguments. All of the commentators I've read argue for a concept called factfulness. And we'll talk about that more as, as we go on. But um, this is a balance that takes into account that the world is not as frightening or hopeless as it appears. And we should fight our negativity bias and choose a more optimistic approach based on, surprise, surprise, factual information. This requires a conscious choice. And uh, it requires us to be very critical about what we see, hear and read in our 24-7 media world. And I'll, I'll just give you an example there. This is part of the postmodern condition, but all of us are, have so much of a barrage of information which is which is information that we're hit with 24-7. And I'll give you an example. My, my late mother used to listen to the ABC 24-7. She didn't sleep all that well, so she's constantly listening to the news. <laughs> and if you constantly listen to, in particular, the ABC news, which I've been spreading misery for 50 years, as far as I can tell, <laughs> um, when they stopped the hospital half hour, they should have uh, they should have you know changed a few things. I've never forgiven them for doing that. But um, my mother would listen to that, and she would talk about African gangs in in Melbourne CBD. They lived in the hills. They talk about all these things, and yet she had a fabulous life. And of course, she she a very prosperous life, a very happy life, a very good family life. But this constant feedback really made her. Uh, concerned and, and miserable, negative about the way the way of the world. So, it comes down to um, filtering that, and that's something I learned at my school too. There's a book called Discrimination of Popular Culture. You can't ban and get rid of popular culture, but you can be discriminating as to what you learn about. So, it all comes down to the world is doing better than we think. So, here's the fun bit. Um, let's talk about reasons to be cheerful. And we can, and you're welcome to throw a few in here, but I'll, it'll, I'll make it a little bit interactive as well because I've got a few things to ask you. But we'll start with the fact that we live here in Australia. And as we know, foreign, foreign policy often was described as Janus faced. You've got to look in and you've got to look out, even though Janus looked both ways. For some reason, they keep using this Janus metaphor. But if we look into our, into our country, we find that we are, um, either the 12th, 13th or 14th, let's say we're the 13th largest economy on the planet, with 0.3% of the world's population. Our per capita GDP is incredible. Here I did a little bit of work. According to the West Australian Department of Jobs, JETSI, whatever all that stands for, JETSI, in 2021, the average state per capita income here in Australia, here in Western Australia, was $135,000 per person. That puts us up with the tax havens of Luxembourg, <laughs> Liechtenstein, uh, some of the oil, some of the oil places. But we're basically in the top four. The top four. Um, we are, in short, living in one of the richest places on the planet. Uh, particularly if you happen to live around here in the so-called Golden Triangle. <laughs> This is an incredibly prosperous part of the world and all of us benefit from that. So it's a very wealthy place in which we live. 30% of us were born overseas. We live in a very multicultural society and this has come back to me in spades in the last few years talking to 
many immigrants, Colombians and all sorts of people. And, and But most recently, I'll just give you one little anecdote, and that's a Bhutanese Uber driver I discovered the other day. And anyone who's into aged care knows that it wouldn't work here in Australia if it wasn't for the Bhutanese <laughs> looking after our older population. But this was a this was an Uber driver, and I asked him, as I ask a lot of people, is Australia what you expected? And he says, it's better than I, what I expected. Um, why is that? He said, well, you know, you've got such great... Everything works so well in this, that and the other. But he, after a while, he opened up and said he actually earns more as an Uber driver in Australia than a minister earns in Bhutan. That's the... <laughs> That's the sort of immigration story that I think is a good one and, and worth restating. The other point that a lot of these immigrants make is that they come from monocultural countries. So we we had a fascinating lecture from a Iraqi who was talking about the fact that he came to Australia and discovered the whole world. So we've got this incredible multicultural dimension to us, which those of us who are children of the Whitlam era remember our Grasbin when it all started, but the multiculturalism of Australia and the fact that 30% of us are born elsewhere, the fact that 24 years ago when I arrived in Perth it was 1.3 million people, it's now 2 million people, so 700,000 risk-takers have appeared, is pretty, is pretty impressive. I think we've got a better understanding of our Indigenous um, background here as well. I mean, um, we, we did the acknowledgement of country at the beginning, but it's worth noting that the, fir the first contemporary welcome to country was performed here in Western Australia in 1976 by Richard Wally and Ernie Dingo. And if you listen to those welcomes to country from our Indigenous colleagues, they generally welcome everyone to this land. And it's quite extraordinary. It's quite noteworthy that they do that. So they do that. But I hadn't realised just how significant it was because often people think, oh, it's just lip service and all that sort of thing, which is why we try and give it some meaning here by talking about some of the changes of the seasons, etc. But our, our US colleagues often comment that of the, of the things they like about Australia, one of them is the welcome to country, the acknowledgement of country. And this is something that, that Australia's done. So obviously we need to improve our understanding of our long history, but... You know, this is a, a very nice concept that we, we started with. So I suppose if we look at Australia, it's wealthy. I was, the, the, the one other one I want to mention is the so-called Gini coefficient. And those of us who say, okay, okay we're wealthy, um, GDP is very strong, you know, all that sort of thing, but um, isn't there a greater gap between rich and poor? Is, is that going like that? Well, the fact is we have a very low... Gini coefficient, we're largely a middle-class pace. The rich are getting richer at a slightly higher rate than the poor are getting richer, but broadly speaking, it's pretty good. So we're in a place where, where we have a large middle, a wealthy middle, and we don't have these great extremes that other countries have. The reason I talk about Australia in a session on international relations, is, as I mentioned at the beginning, this Janus face dimension to it Understanding our identity is very important. And I, I remember when Paul Keating visited Indonesia, and at the time, Paul Keating addressed the, the business community in Jakarta. And, um, you know, they're a cynical bunch of people from, from Australia who, you know, were interested to see what Paul Keating was like. And of course, Paul Keating's very impressive, particularly when he's, when he's really gets going, very impressive in the flesh, as most of our prime ministers are. Um, 
But at that time, the Australian economy was larger than all of the ASEAN economies put together. We'd still get lectures from Lee Kuan Yew, whose economy was probably a bit like Geelong on steroids, to be frank. Um, but we'd get those lectures. But our economy was larger than all of the ASEANs. We spent more on defence than all of the ASEANs. It's not like that now, but we were seen as a significant power and, of course, the whole business community had their chest puffed out <laughs> at the end of the, of the Paul Keating visit. But that understanding is important, but it's also important too, if I could offer one observation, that we don't wallow in the fact that we're Australian and every time we make a foreign policy speech say we're, we're Australians and we stand for this, you notice the Canadians do that a lot with the Americans. <laughs> they can't have a speech without distinguishing themselves from the, the Americans. In my experience in foreign affairs, we spent a lot of time talking about what it is to be Australian. When I first arrived in, in Thailand, Dick Smith would talk about, the, the ambassador at the time would talk about Australia has a special role, a special responsibility in Southeast Asia and this is why and all that sort of thing. I think I was really pleased to hear the our current Prime Minister's speech that he gave here in Western Australia before he went off to the G20 and, and to, um, to Glasgow. And it, it was a fantastic speech on foreign policy, reflecting the fact that he's got a very good team helping him there. But it didn't wallow in what it is to be Australian. It was done without diffidence. And I think that's an important, important dimension to what it is to be Australians, to understand who we are, um, how fortunate we are, uh, and, and what our natural strengths and our weaknesses are, and then, and then get on with it. So that's a bit about Australia. Um, now to the region. And it's, it's not, we can talk about that later, it's not my intention to talk about, as Brenda mentioned earlier, the fact that we're talking from Australia's Indian Ocean capital, very important place to be. Certainly over the years we've talked a lot about the Indo-Pacific and the importance of that in locating ourselves in the world. And We've had Stephen Smith, our former Defence Minister, talk about everything from the growth of China, the growth of India, to the emergence of Africa with a billion people and the fact that we're in that. We had Professor Ben Riley talk about the Southern Hemisphere and a different way of looking at this part of the world instead of, instead of going north-south, and I'll talk about this in a minute, but, but looking at the three... Uh, southern hemispheric countries and, and looking at their similarities. So looking at that, but permit me a, a diversion, uh, in the region just to talk a little about Timor Leste, East Timor. I think East Timor is a reason to be cheerful. When I was in, in, uh, Jakarta, and it had quite a profound effect on me going to East Timor when I was in Jakarta. I was the first sec political. And I mentioned earlier that uh, it's one of the reasons I changed career, but I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, but I visited East Timor in 1991 after the Santa Cruz massacre, and there was literally still blood in the streets. It was horrific. And we were there on a flag-waving... Um, well, we were there to be there, so it didn't happen again. So Australia managed to send people pretty quickly. I was the second uh, Australian in. The, f the first one, <laughs> first one came out... And he couldn't wait to get out of there. He'd been there for 24 hours. And uh, it was a bit like meeting Woody Allen. He's just straight on the plane and, and out of there. So we got there and we spent some time there. During that time, once you was, if, you, if you're there, you're there. During that time, I met Mario Carascalau, the governor of East Timor, on about day three. And he was sitting... I mean, the, the place was still under lockdown, if you like. The, the military were roaming... 
There were still people hiding out from the military. There were people missing. It, it was it was an awful experience for the East Timorese. But on day three or day four, I got to chat to the governor. So I went in as first secretary with a notepad and started taking notes and talking to the governor about this. An hour, two hours, three hours, into the fourth hour. Uh, by this time, I'd put my notepad aside and... and um, and um, you know we were we were in a, a full-on discussion, and he was decrying the fact that Indonesia had done what it had done, and how terrible life was in East Timor under the Indonesians. He was the he was the Mario Karaskalos name applied. Um, was a former UDT head, uh, so from before independence. So he was, if you like, part of the moderate moderate side of things, and a, and, a, and a great guy. But he was decrying the fact that the Indonesians had arrived and, and done what they did. And um, in the end, I said to him, well, you asked for it. You were one of the signatories to the Balibo Declaration that invited the Indonesians to come in. And he said, yes, you're right. And then he said, we asked for integration, but not like this. And I often think that um, the, un- the, the, the Gough Whitlam, our, our um, Prime Minister, acquiesced to the, uh, to the invasion at the time. Uh, certain other senior DFAT officials who, who are still unrepentant, um, that's, that would have given them the apology they could have given because tens of thousands of people died in that decision, which was seen as a real politic decision at the time. Ironically, defence were against it. It was foreign affairs that argued that we should let this flotsam and jetsam of empire be absorbed by Indonesia and get on with it, but none of us expected it to happen the way it did. To their credit, um, and to Alexander Downer, well, one of the things I did was go back and start studying international law, and one of the things I started doing was looking at concepts of autonomy in international law that might apply to somewhere like East Timor, and came up with this beautiful Puerto Rican suggestion, sort of association might work instead of absorption and all the other things. About the same time, Alexander Downer was talking to the Prime Minister Howard, who wrote to to um, President Habibi and suggested that perhaps they should vote on this, and they did. So Australia, in some way, was a midwife to East Timorese independence, and that's a uniformly good thing. Now, I said I'd mention why I changed career because on the fourth visit, fourth or fifth visit to East Timor, about 1993, I was actually there. Things seemed to be going really well. It was terrific. And um, things had calmed down. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is going to work. Um, but um, I went to, there was a new governor at the time. I went to the governor's brother's restaurant. I went with the ABC correspondent. We had Portuguese beef. And I was never the same. So you can imagine, <laughs> if, you th- if you think about it, Portuguese beef, Butchered in, butchered in East Timor and all that sort of thing. I, I had a throat infection, I had great hunks of me cut out and I decided we didn't want to live overseas again and I kept getting green lights to come to Perth and here we are tonight. So <laughs> there you go. So East Timor, that's a reason to be cheerful because it's one of the world's poorest countries but it's a country and it's, it's right next door. Now just on that, here's a, here's a bit on, we're talking a bit about the region and geography who can tell me um, who, who's our nearest neighbour? Anyone? Excellent. 
Papua New Guinea. So many times we get Indonesia. And um, so all those people who muttered PNG, dead right, well done. Um, Papua New Guinea is our nearest neighbour. And one of the things we've done over the years is make sure we have PNG represented at our um, institute's um, speeches, if you like, presentations on PNG. In fact, one, I think one of the best we've had in the last few years was about PNG and of all, of all subjects, midwifery. I didn't think it was going to work. It was outstanding, but a, but a good example of how civil society can work, how churches can work, how things work in, in a place like Papua New Guinea. But PNG is our nearest neighbour. One of the, one of the things that struck me when I went to East Timor is that we don't border Asia, we border Melanesia. If you look at Indonesia, Indonesia is the world's largest Melanesian country. Asia starts in Lombok. So we've actually got this necklace around us which goes from Halmahera and parts of Indonesia all the way to the Solomons. So Australia borders Melanesia, and it's probably worth just pointing it out once every so often. Now here's another one. You probably will get... It's probably it's a really smart audience, so you'll get this. <laughs> so, um, which one's closer to Beijing, London or Sydney? Okay, you've got it. So what they refer to in London as the Far East, um, <laughs> London. So London and Beijing are actually closer. And I'll just make two, two observations here. One was, um, Brendan mentioned I studied Mandarin at uh, Melbourne University, and there was a Professor Harry Simon there, who's a famous sort of sinologist, I suppose. But he used to talk about in space there are no ups and downs. So this was the time of the yellow peril and the red China threat and all that sort of thing. So he just turned the globe upside down and... China was way down there. And, um, you know, all of a sudden you didn't have to worry as much because otherwise it's sort of up there about to come down here and all that sort of thing. So <laughs> it's not a bad thing, but seriously, those of you who are familiar with Canberra, if you go to the Office of National Assessments, you'll see you walk through the corridors and all these incredible maps and charts turning the world upside down, round and round. So we understand our place in the world a little bit, a little bit better. So those of you who are lucky enough to visit the Office of National Assessments, um, it's all there as well. Now, I could ask lots of these geographical questions, including the one about the South Australian-Western Australian border, how it goes back to the Treaty of Tordesillas, but I won't bore you with that one. Um, my favourite one is, um, which country has the longest land border with France? Brazil? Who said Australia? Very good, yeah. Australian Antarctic Territory and France, they have the longest border with us. A great deal of pleasure that I was able to tell the Honorary Consul for France that, uh, fortunately before the submarine thing fell over. <laughs> <laughs> but there are, there are plenty of us. So that's a bit of a geographical sidebar. Back to reasons to be cheerful. Now there are, now to the global reasons to be cheerful, to balance out our negativity bias and its policy pitfalls. Uh, let alone counter our own anxiety and distress that we, we face dealing with the world today. So, number one, the world is a safer place. It is not, as the threat industrial complex asserts, more dangerous than it's ever been. In our terms, for my generation, the Cold War has ended. For many of us, this was the backdrop to our lives. For me, it was, you know, sort of tail end baby boomer, Vietnam, the Cold War, but it's finished. For my father, who's a child of the Depression, it was the Depression. Um, for me, it was the Cold War and Vietnam. For my daughter, it's probably 
She's a child of September the 11th. That's her her backdrop. For my son, it's definitely climate change. He's 25, and that's the that's the backdrop to his life. But the Cold War finished. And this came home to me as just one of those little anecdotes. We recently had a visit by a German ship here to Western Australia. And this is part of the Indian Ocean being in play. So, you know, the Germans are here, the Brits are here, everyone's starting to come through and, and this is good sail through and freedom of navigation, all that sort of thing. So a German ship visit, I was invited on board. It was a little bit tense, surprisingly tense. And that sort of going up on a... German ship, and there's the Iron Cross and all that sort of thing in Fremantle Harbour. They'd been here 20 years before on a training training run, but before that, I think it was to sink the Sydney, and <laughs> and they were very very conscious of that. <laughs> it was it was the day we went on the ship. It was German Unification Day, and I just tell the story because it does highlight that not that long ago we had a Cold War, and the and the captain completely diffused the situation and talked talked it into a talked us all into a fabulous evening of celebrating Germany here in Western Australia at Fremantle. But he had been born in East Germany. At the age of 14, he and his uncle crossed the border to freedom, Hungary and then Austria. He found out when he arrived that a week before, another 14-year-old and his father had been shot and killed at the border. And we're talking 1990. So in terms of reasons to be cheerful... Yes, we live in a multipolar world and all the things that go with that now, but the Cold War, people taking you know, lessons in how to shelter in air raids and all that sort of thing, is over. Um, it can be argued that war is going out of style as well. Globally, the number of deaths has been declining since 1946. World War III remains history's greatest non-event. Terrorism deaths have been dropping for years. So broadly speaking, those figures, people dying in conflict and in wars, have gone down, down, down. This is a reason to be cheerful. doesn't mean we ignore the causes of war. doesn't mean we ignore wars. It means we keep some sort of balance when we're, when we're looking at these things. Now I'll talk about the environment, and I'll be really careful here, because <laughs> the elephant in the room is anthropogenic climate change. And we all have very strong opinions on that. Some of us have very strong opinions on that. So I'm not here to challenge the current orthodoxy, but permit me a few observations, if you like. Um, and one of them is that the earth is greener now than 20 years ago. Australia has more trees. And this is, this is from no less... I've got the study here, because people might want to come and have a look at it later. Um, that comes from no less than the CSIRO Director of the Global Carbon Project here in Australia. So... We're greening. We're not necessarily greening in the healthy, you know, rainforests are going here and forests are springing up here and savannas turning to forests and that. The world is greener, the earth is greener, and Australia has more trees than 20 years ago. ESG, environmental, social and corporate governance principles, are everywhere. And here in Western Australia we know that well. We've got a lot of resources companies, oil and gas companies, agricultural companies... All of them have to report on ESG principles and ironically, taking that into account, Western Australia is one of those places, if you read the business literature, we're set to benefit enormously from this new future of renewables. They're not all renewables. If you look at you know, 
if I look, I picked up a prospectus the other day looking at this new age this and pictures of batteries and cars and space and all that sort of thing. Uh, we were talking about copper and nickel. You know, if I'd had that discussion five or six years ago, as soon as a, you know, don't mind that, don't mind anything, but, but copper, nickel, and now seen as new age metals, lithium, cobalt, the whole hydrogen question, platinum group elements, all these things are seen as part of the future, which will help Western Australia in terms of maintaining, you know, we've had a huge boom and bust cycle. Uh, history's been described here in Western Australia as great, great gulps followed by prolonged bouts of indigestion, but those bouts of indigestion don't seem to have gone on for as long as they have. If I had to comment on one thing, and that is that um, the clear and present danger, as far as I see, is habitat destruction, and this deserves more attention relative to, for instance, closing 24 coal-fired power stations in Australia. Both of those things are important, but in relative terms, the clear present danger that I see and generations going forward might look at is you let that happen on your watch and you spent your whole time looking at these issues here. So in my own experience, and this is as a stockbroker um, flying over rainforest in, well, it was protected forest in Indonesia. So there were three helicopters, like a scene from Apocalypse Now. We're going to visit a gold mine in Sumatra. And we flew over what was meant to be uh, forest reserve. Underneath, all we could see were coffee bushes, soybeans and palm oil. And they just moved in. All of those things were being exported to the west. Um, when we got to the gold mine, it had the last decent bit of forest, the pristine streams, and a few lonely gibbons there. So my view is that um, we should be considering things like the coffee we drink, the soybeans, the palm oil. I know we do that, but we should do it some more. And every morning I look at people picking up, having their coffee in a takeaway container. Like 99% of people do that. Why can't we be just a little bit more like Italians? If we're going to drink coffee, sit down and, and at least not have it in, in a um, in a plastic mug, a throwaway mug or something, but drink it and enjoy it. So do it Italian style. In my last observation on the environmental side is uh, one from my son, who um, is who is studying international law at University of Melbourne, where his parents went. Um, but he, there's a shaft of light, and that's encourage you all to have a look at the Sargasso Sea Commission. And this is a great example of you've got great swathes of the of the oceans not covered by anything. You know, those huge mega ships go through industrial size and and wreck the habitat, take all the fish and all that sort of thing. So the Sargasso Sea is one of those areas that is in the sort of global commons for want of a better thing. But there's a group of international lawyers and countries working to preserve it so that they don't destroy it. I know we have international lawyers here in Western Australia, but as far as I can tell, they're pretty much invisible. But that's a good story. That's the sort of thing that international relations specialists should get involved with. So that's a little bypass on, on um, the economy. Now, I'm, I'm conscious of time, but I'll, so I'll jog through the rest of it because you'll be... You won't be surprised to hear what I'm going to say. We've mentioned the world's a wealthier place. Um, global poverty is halved. Per capita incomes have gone up. 
percentage of hungry people has gone down. Uh, and and near, our second nearest neighbour, Indonesia, um, under President Suharto, deserves some praise here. They they had, according to the World Bank, the world's most successful poverty eradication program in human history, next door in Indonesia. People used to starve in Indonesia in the provinces, and it wasn't that long ago, 70s and into the 80s. That certainly doesn't happen now. So the world is a wealthier place. In medical terms, there's, there's never been a better time to be sick. There's, there's, um, if you're going to be sick or crook, um, first of all, you can avoid it with levels of immunisation or at strong levels and all that sort of thing, but the surgical outcomes, the, the cancer outcomes, etc., are staggeringly, staggeringly good. 80% of the world's one-year-old children have been vaccinated against most diseases. Things like when the, when the Royal Visit came here in 1954, they couldn't get off the Royal Yacht, or well, they stayed on the Royal Yacht in Fremantle because there was polio in Perth. That, you know, we're not having those discussions anymore. Of course, we know about COVID-19. We know all about that. Um, and I've got to say, if I had to choose this year what the reason to be cheerful is, and that's in a year, you know, the world managed to develop a vaccine and get it out there, despite all the bloody noise about vaccine, anti-vaccine, all that sort of thing. It's just incredible. So that gets my vote for 2021. Just a few more observations based on experience. So women in the workforce. And women in the workforce has been compared to what's happened in the last 50 to 100 years has been compared to the same, as, same impact as the Industrial Revolution. Just incredible um, significance, the, same, the effect that it's had on the global economy. I went to Korea with the Institute of International Affairs to... Republic of Korea. And we're driving past a Baptist university that was established in the early 20th century, about 1903. And it's a university now, but it started as a school, and they wanted to educate Korean girls. In their first year, 1903, no Korean girls were educated at all, and they couldn't even get anyone from the palace there in that first year to be educated. So 1903, nada, nothing. No education for women. A bit like, sadly, what's happening in Afghanistan again now. But we've come a, we've come a long way in this part of the world. And just to give you another example, um, Dr. Sue Boyd, when she was in the Department of Foreign Affairs, fifteen years before us, um, in those days, if you're a woman and you got married, you had to resign. So those things. Those things are better. I'm not saying we're there yet, but crikey, look at where we've come from uh, and look at where we're going. And the, the final thing I'll talk about is technical innovation. And technology provides lots of reasons to be hopeful. So we've all got iPhones, um, this broadcast, which is going on Sky News Extra. Um, that Stephen Pinker uh, points out that at some stage in this decade, the entire world will have internet access and will be linked together with a man-made system for the first time in history. Staggering. That's happening now, if you like. Interesting when it comes to technology, it's the millennials who, are, who show the most hope for technology. 86% of them see technology creating jobs and are quite optimistic about the, the outlook. It's the baby boomers who have this negativity bias when it comes to Technology, but the list of of why the world is a better place is is pretty much endless. 
I recommend, if you've got your iPhone with you, to have a look at um, a site called Future Crunch. And um, this is a site for intelligent optimists, if you like, but it was, it was referred to me by one of um, Perth's leading producers, and she uses it to balance the ABC view of the world and all that sort of thing. And it's got all sorts of stats in there. You, you get an email in your, in your, you know, every two weeks if you want it, from sanitation in Senegal improvements to India's rollout of immunisation to peace breaking out in various parts of the world to more gorillas in the Congo. So in terms of balancing, uh, there's an endless list in Future Crunch. So I encourage you all to have a look at Future Crunch. Future crunch. Um, so back to these commentators. They um, they talk about reasons to be cheerful. Uh, the world is getting better. Everything from war, violence, poverty to health uh, and wealth are improving. People live longer. They eat better. They're better educated and have higher standards of living than they had before. We in WA are particularly fortunate. Wealthy, safe live in a multicultural state and a dynamic part of the world. Yet we're biased towards negativity. We erroneously expect destruction. So as we've seen, this negative bias, this negativity bias, can lead to poor policy outcomes and lead to abject misery (laughs) for many of us. But it can be countered by providing accurate information and choosing a more active or optimistic narrative. So the way I look at that, I've mentioned, you've heard, we've all heard of the concept of, of mindfulness. There's, a comp, there, there's another one called factfulness, and that's um, a chap called Hans Rosling who, 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 who invented the term. Um, he, he argued that factfulness um, is a useful way for navigating life and is more comfortable. We can see the world is not as bad as it seems and we can see what we have to do to keep making it better. So his book called Factfulness, uh, I've got all the details here, is well worth looking at. But for those of us in international relations, a discipline arguably rooted in pessimism, it's time probably to counter our negativity bias uh, and acknowledge that the world is arguably doing better than we may think and that there are plenty of reasons to be cheerful. Thanks very much.